Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. ARK Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARK. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARK or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARK to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Well, here I am today with Steve Case. Uh, Steve Case, as I'm sure most of you know, is the founder, was the founder of uh, AOL way back in 1985, before most of you were born, actually. <laughs> and I was early in my career as well. I'd love to to share with you as this uh, podcast goes on, Steve's um, exploits since AOL. He's just been a mover and a shaker and doing some very exciting things right now. But first, I'd like, Steve, to uh, kind of take you back there, uh, 85 through the late 90s, um, when you ultimately sold AOL to, to Time. And, you know, many people uh, are using the late 90s as an analogy to what happened in 2020. And uh, the bust uh, uh, is they relate to what's going on now in tech. So I would love to get your point of view on that, Steve, before we launch into the revolution. Sure. Well, first of all, it's great to be with you, Kathy. And it has been an interesting journey for me when we started uh, America Online AOL in, in 1985, only 3% of people were online, and those 3% were online an average of one hour a week. So it was pretty early days in terms of the adoption of, of the internet. Uh, and you know, it, it was a struggle, frankly, in those first few years to get people to pay attention, to be able to raise venture capital, to be able to hire people, because a lot of people were skeptical that the internet ever would be a, a broad mainstream phenomenon. Most people thought it would be limited to sort of computer hobbyists. But eventually we broke through. We went public in 1992. It was the first internet company to go public. Uh, and we raised a whopping $10 million in our IPO. And the value of the company that day was $70 million. And frankly, even then, nobody really knew or cared what we were doing because the internet was still viewed as being kind of a niche kind of thing. But then, as you know, things really accelerated in the, in the mid to late 90s. Uh, AOL went from being a small player to a big player, went from a uh, that $70 million market cap to, I think at our peak, it was $160 billion. It was the best performing stock of, of, of that decade. And that's when we merged with uh, with, uh, with Time Warner in, in 2000. And then I stepped aside as, as, uh, as CEO and started focusing on my next act, which ended up evolving to be revolution to invest in the next generation of founders and particularly the rise of the rest backing entrepreneurs in different parts of, uh, of the country. In terms of the second part of your question, the comparison between what happened 20 years ago and sort of the market reset more more recently, I think there's some things that are similar and some things that, that are different. I think the things that are similar in some cases, the valuations of some companies did get a little ahead of themselves a couple of years ago. And after a 13, 14 year, year 
bull market. It wasn't surprising that there would be a little bit of a reset. What's different, though, is in you know 20 plus years ago with that dot-com era, most of the companies that were going public then were really early stage concept companies. They didn't really have clear business models. They really didn't have much in the way of, of, of revenue. Certainly didn't have any way of, of profit. And while there have been cer certain exceptions, certainly in the SPAC market, particularly for the most part, the companies have gone, that have gone public in the last few years are real companies that have real futures. So it's more of a re-evaluation of what the current valuation should be as opposed to what happened then where a lot of the companies you know, ended up actually going out of business a few years after that, that crash. So certainly be some of that this time around, but not nearly the level of, of that that we saw 20 years ago. Yeah, what I find very interesting, and, and you will remember this, investors were falling all over each other by the end of the 90s to jack up their tech weights uh, relative to the competition, relative to the benchmarks. But uh, the way I describe what was happening back then, and, and it's similar to what you've just said, was the technologies, for the most part, were not ready. And uh, if they were anywhere near ready, the costs were way too high. Um, we, we didn't have uh, cloud computing until really AWS in 2006. We didn't have the big breakthrough in deep learning until 2012. And if you look at DNA sequencing, so personalized medicine back in the day, you know, it cost $2.7 billion in 2003 to sequence the first whole human genome. Now it takes $500. So I find the, the contrast to be pretty stark myself in terms of the technologies and the costs. And, uh, yeah, happy to hear you say that most of these companies are real. And in fact, if you look at uh, our strategies, they are uh, many, many of the companies are selling um, today um, at a stock price we haven't seen since 2017 or 18. So it's been uh, quite the trip. And uh, I think um, I think we're excited about the future. Um, so, you know, one, one question uh, about AOL back in the day, I remember what you did was quite daring uh, because wasn't it illegal, illegal until uh, the Telecommunications Act, uh, was it of 86 for consumers to even use the internet? Yeah, it's sort of crazy about when we first got started in 85, the internet was still restricted to government agencies and educational institutions. So if you work for some you know, government group, the CIA or the IRS or somebody, you could use the internet if you were working on or at a student on a you know, college or university campus, you could use the internet. But if you were a consumer or a business, you couldn't use the internet. And it did take congressional legislation to essentially commercialize access to the internet. So when we got started, we had to, and some of the other competitors at the time, had to essentially create our own parallel universe. We created our own email systems or built our own servers to basically have something that sat alongside the internet. And then when the internet got commercialized, we were able to obviously bridge to it and AOL then evolved to be kind of being an on-ramp to the internet as well as providing a lot of services that were unique to, uh, you know, to AOL. Okay, before we get to the revolution that you are stirring out there uh, now, Steve, I'd love to just summarize a couple of other uh, uh, parts of your uh, CV, you have been a leading voice in shaping uh, government policy on issues associated with entrepreneurship. And just love to uh, delve into that a little bit today 
in an area that a lot of people are, are, are focused on, concerned about, talking about, wondering what the heck is going to happen. Um, and that's uh, crypto, uh, DeFi, Web3. Uh, do you have any thoughts about government policy uh, in, in those realms right now? Well, sure. A little bit of uh, backstory on terms of how I got involved on some of the policy issues. I was asked probably 11 or 12 years ago to co-chair something called the National Advisory Council on Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Uh, and that led to a series of recommendations, one of which the White House and President Obama embraced to create an initiative called Startup America. And he asked me to chair that. And that got me traveling around the country, seeing what was happening in different different regions around uh, entrepreneurship. And that also led to the, what passed about 10 years ago, the Jobs Act, the Jumpstarting Our Business Startups Act, which updated some of the, the securities you know, laws. And, and that really kind of led me to this path of trying to figure out ways to make sure America continues to lead the way as the most innovative entrepreneurial nation in the world and also can do it in a more inclusive way that brings along more people and more places. So it's not just limited to certain people in certain places like Silicon Valley, but it's much more broad based. So that really was the, you know, really the journey that got me started. And ultimately that led us to launching Rise of the Rest bus trips, which we started doing eight years ago, seeing different cities. And we launched uh, uh, you know, Rise of the Rest funds about five years ago. We, we've now backed over 200 companies in 100 different different cities. So it all started with that policy. And particularly in, in insight I, I had then, and I maybe should have known it at the time, but I really didn't, which was that most of the new jobs in the in the country were being created by new companies, startups, companies less than five years, not by small business, not by big business, not by new business. That was a surprise to me. And the second was that most of the venture capital at the time, 75% of the venture capital was going to just three states, California, New York, and Massachusetts. We said, well, we need to figure out ways to get venture capital to more entrepreneurs in more parts of the, you know, the country. And that really led to what we've been doing at, uh, at Revolution. In terms of you know, crypto, I think what's happening now, it's not that surprising. Again, it's a, a new technology that emerged. People were trying to understand what it was. Governments, not just in this country, but around the world, were trying to figure out what kind of regulation should they have. Should it be more of the light touch that you saw in the early days of the internet, or should it be more, you know, more rigorous in terms of trying to figure out how to build in, in, in safeguards? And that debate has been continuing over the past, you know, couple of years. I think it's accelerated in recent months, certainly in Washington, with with uh, some of the agencies and even with Congress looking at some legislation. And obviously what's happened more recently with, with FTX, I think just accelerates you know, that review. And I'm guessing sooner rather than later, there will be more clarity in terms of what's happening on the, on the policy front related to crypto. Do you think it's going to be a little bit like the first installment of the internet, which it, it seems as though the US, is from a, US from a policy point of view, wanted to encourage innovation and not basically leave it to regulatory arbitrage uh, with other countries uh, stealing the mantle or the baton from us. Do you think that's where we're going this time around as well? Because this really is the next generation internet, right? Yeah, I'm guessing it will be a little bit more than what we saw 20 years ago, because that was the emergence of a technology that started with very limited use. I mentioned when we got started, only 3% of people were connected, you know, very little capital being invested in it. Our first round of capital for AOL was $1 million because, you know, crypto 
kind of came on the scene so quickly and the amount of capital uh, that, that's been invested and the number of people who've been investing in it is so much broader. I, I, and, and there have been now these challenges and, and, and setbacks, including what's happened, obviously, with FTX. I think it will be more than a light touch. Exactly how far you know, the government goes. I, I've not been specifically focused on, on those issues. I don't have an update in terms of what they're thinking, but I'm guessing it will be somewhat more than what we saw 20 years ago when, when the internet was still in its infancy. Not many people were using it. Not many people were, were investing in it. Uh, but you're right. You know, the, the challenge always is to make sure you, you, you know, kind of do things to protect people and, you know, in this case, protect uh, investors keep bad things from happening, but at the same time, you don't squash what could be possible, limit what could be possible. Uh, and that's always the balancing act. You also want to make sure while you're protecting against the downside, you're also maximizing the upside and particularly maximizing the ability for America to lead, lead the world in, in some of these technologies of the future and indices of the future. So it's cer certainly tricky to figure out how to strike the balance. Yeah, I think the balance uh, is going to be really important, uh, but I agree with you. Uh, you know. Uh, the information age, uh, bringing money into it, uh, into move into packets moving around, is a little bit more serious in terms of uh, protection of investors. And then just two other points from your CV that uh, I found very interesting: that you chair the Smithsonian Institute uh, or institution, and uh, and then you also have. Uh, case foundation, your case foundation with your wife, Jean, uh, where you focus on leveraging the internet and entrepreneurial approaches to strengthen the social sector. One of the things that I love about innovation is it is a great leveler. And, you know, uh, there are uh, people who have very advanced degrees who um, could not find a course on crypto in the day. And so our analysts who who are basically native to it uh, could run circles around them just because the knowledge wasn't there before. This is a, a new movement. And even my own father, my father had a sixth grade education, but came to the United States, got into the American Air Force at the dawn of the electronic age and became made it his business to become an expert in radar systems, a design engineer. And he had a life in the land of opportunity that he was dreaming of and that really did deliver, but it was because of innovation. Uh, so I, I love what you're doing uh, both at the Smithsonian and uh, with, with the foundation, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this idea of the great leveler and then we can get into the revolution. Uh, your revolution company. Yeah, no, it's a great honor to be the chair of the Smithsonian. It's an organization that was started 176 years ago. Uh, it's a, you know, the global leader in terms of a museum complex. We now have 21 museums as well as significant research operations around, around the country, indeed around you know, the world. And it is one of the institutions that is really respected by everybody. It's a, it gets bipartisan support from, from Congress. That, you know, we, we, we get uh, 30, 40 million visitors to our various museums. And it really inspires people about what's possible. And I remember when I was a, a teenager uh, coming to Washington, D.C., and it was 1976. I just graduated from uh, high school and 
That was the year the country was celebrating its 200th birthday. Uh, and that's the year also the summer that the Smithsonian opened for the first time its Air and Space Museum that's become the most popular museum now in, in, in the world. We just actually reopened it a couple of months ago. It was, it was there for a number of the new exhibits that have been reopened. We reopened part of it. We're reopening the rest of it actually four years from now when America celebrates its 250th you know, birthday. And we're doing that in part because of a very generous grant from Jeff Bezos, who made a $200 million commitment to the Smithsonian specifically around air and space and building of the Bezos Learning Center. So the Smithsonian is a great uh, institution, uh, you know, proud to be part of it. And one of the key areas of focus ties in with some of the things you're, you're focusing on, which is we don't just want people to come to us at the Smithsonian. We want to go to them. We want to take the Smithsonian to every home and classroom and, and embrace new technologies to enable us to you know, to do that. And we're making some progress on that. I expect that to continue in the years to come. Also, you mentioned my wife, Jean. She is chair of the National Geographic Society, which is another great institution over 130 years. It's really the global leader in expedition and has also been a great innovator in digital technologies. Nat Geo actually is the leading digital brand on, on Instagram and many other platforms because of the, the popularity of their photography and, and how that brand resonates. So while most of my focus is on revolution, backing the next generation of entrepreneurs obviously do spend some time trying to figure out ways to, to give back. And that includes the Smithsonian and, and National Geographic. That's a, a very nice setup for, uh, for a, a discussion about Revolution, your company based in DC. I know you have three, three venture funds effectively. So maybe you can talk a little bit about those and uh, why, why you started the company. Uh, you've touched on it a bit and uh, maybe talk a little bit about your book and uh, you know how people can learn go into a little bit more depth uh, uh, behind your thinking. Well, revolution evolved a little bit when I when I did step down as CEO of AOL, which was as we discussed uh, over twenty years ago. I started making some investments in, in some you know, new companies, and then started making more investments, and then built a team to, to, to manage that. And then about a decade ago, decided to really institutionalize and try to build Revolution as a, as a significant investment firm uh, with outside capital as well as my own uh, capital. And now, we, as you mentioned, we have three strategies. The later stage revolution growth is investing in companies when they're you know, kind of getting ready to maybe two, three years out from, uh, from being public. And some of the companies we've backed there that have gone public recently include DraftKings in, in the sports tech space, Clear, which focuses on biometric security in airports and arenas, other kinds of venues, Sweet Green, a fast casual you know, concept that started here in D.C. has now expanded around the, the country. Tempest in, in Chicago is still a private company, but doing some very interesting things around precision medicine. So those are some of the companies in our in our revolution growth you know, portfolio. We also have a venture fund focused on more classic kind of Series A investments when companies are trying to raise, call it five or ten million dollars to get to the the next stage. And, and then we the more recent addition uh, just about five years ago was the Rise of the Rest Seed Fund. And we decided to launch the seed fund specifically to focus on investing outside of the major tech hubs, the you know, the the Bay Area, the New York City area, the Boston area, which still gets most of the venture capital in this country. And so it, the Rise Rest Fund it partners with regional investors. So far, we've co-invested with over 300 regional you know, venture firms, and we've made 200 investments in 100 different cities. And the reason I wrote the book uh, was that I've spent most of the decade now traveling around the country, being in, in many of these uh, you know, cities. I remember you know, seeing you last year in, uh, in Nashville. Uh, you know, I know you're, you 
moved recently to St. Petersburg, which we were in, in, in with our Rise of the Rest bus. We've been in dozens and dozens of dozens of cities and met hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of entrepreneurs. And it's a story about innovation in this country that most people are not aware of. Most people still are focused on what's happening in, in Silicon Valley and not focused enough on what's happening in other parts of the, the country. So the, the, the goal of the book was to open some eyes in, in terms of what's happening, maybe inspire some, some entrepreneurs in some of these cities to start companies, maybe encourage some investors on the coast to pay more attention to what's happening in other parts of the country, hopefully also launch some new venture firms. One of the most positive things that's happened in the last decade is a, we did a joint uh, project with uh, PitchBook uh, about a year ago called Beyond Silicon Valley. And one of the, the data points that came out of that is in the last 10 years, 1,400 new venture capital firms have started in these drive the rest cities. So there is now more capital in these cities that can back the next generation of entrepreneurs. So I'm pretty optimistic in the next 10 or 20 years, while Silicon Valley will still be the, the leader for sure, and New York will still do well, and Boston will still do well. There'll be dozens of other cities around the country that also do well, and that will help level the playing field in terms of jobs and opportunity, and also create wonderful investment opportunities for, for investors who aren't just looking in the usual places, but are making the extra effort to find entrepreneurs in, in these different rise of the rest you know, cities. And hopefully this book will, will lead to even further acceleration of that. We did see during the pandemic, not surprisingly, a lot of people that uh, thought they would be in Silicon Valley decide to move to some other place. So a little bit of a dispersion of, 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 of talent. We also saw a little bit of a dispersion of capital. Some of those venture capital sitting in Silicon Valley suddenly were doing pitch meetings by Zoom and said, well, maybe I can do a pitch meeting with somebody in, outside of you know San Francisco, not just within San Francisco. So that actually has been a positive. I hate to say it because the pandemic has been so difficult in so many respects. But if you're looking for a silver lining, I think it, it's an, an accelerant, a tipping point uh, for what's happening with Rise of the Rest. Definitely a, a tipping point. Uh, couldn't agree more. You know, what you're doing is so important. Uh, uh, we're looking at the traditional asset management world, which is in the public realm. And what we've seen happen is a shift towards index-based strategies, going passive or extreme benchmark sensitivity, people fearing for their careers or their businesses. So they're kind of, uh, you know, they're, they're hewing to these benchmarks. And uh, I've always said, you know, this is the most massive misallocation of capital in the history of mankind. You know, this is a very backwards-looking strategy. The companies at the top, of many of these broad-based benchmarks now are being disruptive, uh, disrupted. They used to be the disruptors. So Meta Platforms, formerly Facebook, is one of them. Netflix, you know, even to some extent, Apple now, Amazon with social commerce. So, you know, I ha uh, have been very discouraged over the last 20 years, especially since the tech and telecom bust, and even more so since 08-09 at this accelerated shift towards passive investing. Now, tried and true is okay if the world's not changing very much, but you know what we believe is going to happen is we're shifting from a linear growth uh, world into an exponential growth world you know, with five major platforms. And I think artificial intelligence is, uh, is astounding all of us at the speed uh, it is evolving and 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 uh, and showing breakthroughs. So what you're doing is, you know, basically uh, focused on allocating capital to what I would say is its highest and best use, 
which is what we're trying to do in the public markets because some of your companies will want to access the public markets at some point in order to scale into these exponential growth opportunities, particularly if they have you know, high fixed cost bases. So we're in the middle of a correction in all things innovation. Uh, and our correction, our strategy started correcting actually in February of 21, when uh, people were getting vaccinated, going back to work, and this, uh, and this gap between demand and supply opened up, uh, causing massive supply chain problems. And then of course we had the, the war. The VC uh, um, correction really has started in earnest this year. Where do you think we are in that process? Well, a couple of things. First of all, just as you said, in terms of your strategy around the public markets and looking for sort of something that's a little, maybe a little bit contrarian, uh, which is the way you generate you know, the you know, best returns, that's essentially what we're doing with venture capital. The idea that 75% of venture capital, as I said before, goes to just three states, it's crazy. You know, those are great states. California, New York, Massachusetts, there's great innovation happening in those states. But the but the other 47 states just getting 25% of venture capital is a is a poor allocation of capital. And it's kind of hit based on history where venture capital started in those cities. And and you know, the, the, obviously there, there's a lot of been success in those cities. But we think this next wave, this next 10 or 20 years, will be far more companies in, in different cities. And that's again why I wrote the book and profiled a bunch of companies. I'll just give you a few examples. In in Atlanta, there's a company called Hermia that's building a Mach 5 engine uh, and, and to be able to basically get from Atlanta to Europe in 90 minutes. And the Air Force, not surprisingly, a big customer. The Air Force likes to you know, move things. And most people would think a company like that must be in Silicon Valley. No, it's in Atlanta, Georgia, because Atlanta happens to be an aerospace hub. And Georgia Tech happens to be one of the best universities in the country that's focused on, on research technologies there. And as you know, some of the very best uni research universities in the, in the country are not just on the coast. They're in the, in the middle of the country. Some of the most important national labs doing some of the fundamental basic research similarly are in the middle of the country. So that's why we think there'll be so much uh, momentum that's building around the rise of the rest and what is now sort of an arbitrage where because it is harder for entrepreneurs in places like St. Petersburg to, to raise capital than if they're in San Francisco, the valuations tend to be lower, particularly at the earlier rounds. And then over time, as they, as they get more success, and certainly when they go public, that arbitrage, if you will, you know, closes. We think that that will be one of the big mega trends over the next you know, 10 or 20 years where more capital goes to more entrepreneurs in, in more places. And, and that's what, just what we're trying to drive with, with Rise to Rest. In terms of the venture capital market more broadly and the reset, and not surprising, the first place you saw that reset was with the growth funds, which pulled back some of the really active funds a couple of years ago like a Tiger Global, Co2, and some others really pulled back, in some cases pulled out completely. You know, SoftBank also pulled back with some of the big mega investments they were making you know, several years ago. So that was the first place you saw it. Now we're starting to see uh, some of that correction in the in the more of the venture space where you know companies are doing kind of extension rounds. They don't necessarily want to raise a new round that might be a down round. So they're trying to figure out ways to, to you know, manage their cash so it have, they have a longer runway and you typically do insider rounds with you know terms that don't force a, a reset. We haven't yet seen that kind of reset really to any meaningful degree in the seed stage because that still is you know early when the valuations are still pretty modest. They always have been you know pretty modest, so there's been less of a of a correction there. But there's no question that after a number of years of 
really more than a decade of a really strong market in terms of venture capital where, where valuations in some cases were getting well ahead of what they should have been. There has been a, a reset and everybody's had to you know, kind of pull back and reassess. One of the lessons, though, going back to our earlier conversation from 20 years ago with the, you know, what happened with the Internet you know, kind of uh, boom and then bust, some people walked away from that thinking, oh, I guess the Internet was just a fad. I guess we shouldn't have invested. It turned out that the internet was not a fad, and some of the, but the best years still were ahead in terms of the growth and, and of, of the internet. There was just a reset in terms of some of the valuations. Some of the companies turned out to not be good, you know, good investments. Some of the valuations of some of the companies at the time turned out to be excessive, but the basic trends were still there. And the smart investors were the ones who, even though they likely got hurt uh, when the you know, dot-com crash happened and many companies uh, even went bankrupt, uh, that they continued to invest and then were able to benefit from the growth of the internet and the new companies that emerged uh, in, that, in that phase. I think we'll see some of that in the, in the coming years. It just we, we expect it to be not just in the usual places like, uh, like Silicon Valley, but in cities all across the country. Yes, uh, so lots to unpack there. Um, it, you know, I'm going to give a shout out to St. Pete and the Tampa Bay region generally. I did not know until we moved here that uh, USF, the University of South Florida, is an R1 school, uh, you know, known for its research. Uh, and so that, that school is becoming a part of our evolution here and the evolution of a foundation that I set up around education through the lens of innovation, repurposing ARC's research, making it age appropriate. We're already in the Pinella school system here in the curriculum for sixth grade science. So uh, uh, that's that's the first thing, uh, giving a, a shout out. Um, I find it also very interesting that in the public markets, unlike the late 90s, when investors were clamoring and just uh, climbing all over each other to get into deals and so forth. Now we have investors, and this has been true for the last two years, running for the hills. And what are those hills? They're their benchmarks. So from a behavioral psychology point of view, uh, the, the dynamic today couldn't be more different from the late 90s. And these companies are real, generating real cash flow. And you know their profitability, as, as we've done our study, is going to be enormous going forward, but they're spending aggressively now, as they should be. I think uh, public companies today, because of short-term oriented shareholders, are afraid to invest too much in R&D or sales and marketing or even stock-based compensation in the early days, thinking that, thinking that their shareholders will, will sell. Uh, so it's it's a little upside down. The private markets, I think, have it more right in terms of where valuation should be and how much companies should be spending in their early days in order to capitalize on these opportunities. No question. There's a risk when companies go public that they tend to focus more on the in the short term, they tend to not, you know, kind of make the long term investments. And we're already seeing some of that in, in this reset happening with, with the, in the market right now. Some of the large companies, some of the big incumbents in a lot of different sectors uh, are cutting costs and, and laying people off. And, and sometimes that means they, they, they stop some of the innovation initiatives they had internally uh, that could have driven growth down the road. 
that actually creates an opportunity for the entrepreneurs who, who have more of an opening in those sectors than they did before. And we're seeing that in a lot of these rise of the rest of cities. I also wanted to build on what you said around St. Pete and, and UCSF, USF, the, some of the very best uh, universities in, in the country are places like in Ann Arbor with the University of Michigan or in Phoenix with Arizona State or in uh, Pittsburgh with Carnegie Mellon or in Columbus with Ohio State. I could give you, you know, a dozen others. And historically, they have been magnets for talent. People have gone there and, and gone to you know, school or get PhDs there. But historically, then would leave when they graduated. There was sort of a brain drain because there wasn't enough happening in those cities. And that led them to go to other places, usually the coast, particularly places like Silicon Valley. One of the encouraging things we've seen in recent years is a little bit of a slowing of the brain drain. More of those people when they graduate are staying in those cities and actually a boomerang of some people returning to uh, some of those cities. That's one of the things I document in the in the Rise of the Rest book. It's sort of this following the money is one way to, to make investments, but following the talent is probably the better way in the venture capital you know, kind of world where we're seeing where the talent goes. And we're, while Silicon Valley still is the leader of the pack, will continue to be the leader of the pack. People, I think, are going to be surprised what happens over the next uh, phase in terms of how many cities really do rise up. Yeah, and I think you've been an inspiration to the Tampa Bay region. Uh, we're seeing all kinds of innovation centers. We're helping St. Petersburg with an innovation center that will open up, be an incubation center next year. There's Embark Collective, with which Jeff Venick uh, founded. That's a, a private uh, uh, incubation center uh, uh, run by Lakshmi. Uh, she's doing an amazing job there. Uh, and there's just a, this ethos of DNA and excitement and youth that is here. I feel like there's real joy here as well. And, and that, that just to build that, that's we were there with our Rise Rest bus in Tampa and St. Pete just a little over three years ago when Embark Collective was still under construction. I did a, a, a fireside chat with uh, with uh, Jeff Vinnick and you know, we had hundreds of people uh, and you could tell something was was bubbling there. And what you said is until you moved there, you didn't fully appreciate what was happening there. That's the story in all these Rise of the Rest cities. That's really why I wrote the book. I, when I go to these cities, I see things, experience things that, I, that surprise me. When people come with us, join us on these bus tours, even people who were from those cities, they're surprised at what's happening, particularly in the startup communities. And so that's when, when people hit the ground and see what's happening, they suddenly say, huh, there's much more happening here in the startup community than I, I thought. There, 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 was, there was a really more reason to be optimistic. Maybe it is time to to move back to a place that I left before because there wasn't opportunity before. And, and there, I've heard more and more of those stories in the past decade and certainly more still over the past couple of years during the pandemic. Yeah, I feel, uh, I do feel the optimism, I called it joy, but it's real optimism about the future here that uh, I don't feel in maybe the more established cities uh, around venture, which is which is kind of ironic. They're hungrier. They're 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 fighting. They're fighting to be you know respected even locally. They're fighting to get more attention nationally, and and that's why we've been focused on this rise the rest initiative for the last uh, decade. We want to help champion these entrepreneurs and spotlight showcase these these cities. So it gets a little easier for people to start companies there, a little easier for people to scale companies there. And these cities do benefit from the job creation aspects of, of, of new companies. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm just wondering, in terms of the various stages of venture uh, that you're involved in, where do you think are there are the biggest inefficiencies relative to the traditional VC world? 
Well, I think a couple of inefficiencies. One we've been talking about, which is this geographic disparity, where because it's harder to raise capital, classic supply demand, you know, the valuations of a company in St. Pete would be lower than if that same company with the same team, with the same business model, with the same revenues were in San Francisco, just because there's fewer people trying to find those companies in St. Pete. And there are a lot of people trying to invest in those companies in San Francisco. So that's one disparity. Another disparity is in the earlier stages of venture, particularly seed and also the venture stage, uh, there is much more of a, of a, you know, the market is much less efficient because, for the reasons I, I mentioned. As it gets later and people are raising 50 or $100 million and their valuations are a billion dollars or, or, or more, still not public, it's sort of a late stage private valuation, uh, the market tends to be more, more efficient then because there are more people willing to write those larger checks, even if the company is in one of these rise to rest you know, cities. So over time, I think like any, any market inefficiency that you know, those gaps will close. But right now, the early stage of venture, particularly in the rise of the rest cities, there's the biggest inefficiency. And do you, do you see uh, differences in terms of companies that are going to need some heavy lifting in terms of fixed assets relative to, you know, this notion of viral apps that, uh, you know, will enjoy the network effect? Are, are, are the, is there discrimination there, do you think? Yeah, no, I think it's always been more difficult to raise, you know, capital for a company that needs a ton of capital. It's sort of if it's one thing to raise it for a, you know, software company, which with its relatively small team can build a, you know, a, an app or some kind of software uh, platform and then, you know, kind of start, you know, marketing it. The, the, the market has gotten better uh, at that in the last, you know, kind of decade than it was uh, maybe 10, 15 years ago, particularly in spaces like climate tech. There, there's a lot more investment in sustainability than there was a decade ago, in part because some of the early venture bets going back 15, 20 years ago in, in the climate space didn't work out too well. The returns were not what people hoped because the companies took longer to develop and required more, more capital. I think there is now a lot of capital going into that space and even some government policy, including some of the legislation that passed Congress the last few months, is helping accelerate some of the funding around some of those new technologies, some of those new, uh, new industries. Uh, I think that's going to be a, a real positive. I want to thank you for what you are doing, because I think it is so important to uh, our competitive positioning in the world. I think it's critically important uh, to harness this natural DNA that we have as a nation. I, I, do, do you agree on that? As uh, you know, many people are discouraged by the politics today. And, and I say, no, you know, the DNA of this country is going to get us to the right place. And I think innovation is a big part of that uh, DNA. Um, do you feel the same way? No, no question. I, I, it goes back to what I was talking about with the Smithsonian, that I remind people that, you know, 250 years ago, America itself was a startup. It was just an idea. And like many startups, it almost failed, almost hit the wall. And like many startups, there are a lot of skepticism that America could ever survive. Most people around the world thought it was an experiment that would fail. But eventually it went from struggling to, to thriving and kind of led the way with the agriculture revolution and led the way with the industrial revolution, more recently led the way with the technology revolution and gone from this fledgling startup to the leader of the pack, the leader of the free world. And so uh, we can continue to build on that pioneering spirit. We can continue to lead the world, but we need to make sure we're leading the future. We need to make sure we're investing in the, not just the technology of the future, but building the industries of the future. And we can only do that if we're doing it in a more 
inclusive way. We can't just continue to rely on a few people in a few places. We need to really celebrate entrepreneurship everywhere, back startups everywhere, uh, and create you know jobs, hope, and opportunity everywhere. And that's really why I wrote the you know the Rise of the Rest book because it tells an optimistic story about America and what could be a very uh, you know, interesting uh, chapter, this next chapter in the American story. Well, uh, the rise of the rest uh, is pointing the way, everyone. So go out and buy that book and, and be inspired because Steve Case really is stirring uh, another revolution. And I think it's so exciting. And again, Steve, thank you so much. Uh, Loved having you on, but is there anything else you would like to leave with? No, I just want to end by saying thank you for you know, hosting this and giving me an opportunity to talk about the book and talk more broadly about innovation in, in America. I look forward to working together. Likewise. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you, Kathy. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.